2: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Throughout the Israel-Hamas war, there has been a lot of activism through the arts. Today, we hear from Zaina Azam. She's a Palestinian-American poet, writer, and community activist. But first, there are approximately 2.45 million people who need humanitarian assistance in Gaza. And the entire population is now at risk of starvation. 1.4 million people have been displaced in Gaza, and more than 20,000 people have been killed. The October 7th Hamas attack killed 1,200 people in Israel, and close to 300 people have been killed in the occupied West Bank. That's according to Save the Children, an international NGO and humanitarian aid organization based here in Connecticut. And joining us now is Yanti Shrepto. She's the president and CEO of Save the Children. Thank you so much, Yanti, for being with us today. Hi, Catherine. Thank you for having me. And for our listeners, if you have any questions, let us know 888 720 9677. That's 888 720 WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. So, Yanti, you want to start the conversation if you can give us an update of what Save the Children is saying currently in Gaza.
1: Well, Catherine, it is still, uh, you know, a complete humanitarian catastrophe um, as, as it stands. There is nowhere safe to go for, for children, for anybody really in, in Gaza, as long as this level of indiscriminate uh, violence is, is continuing. It is impossible, not impossible to get uh, aid supplies into uh, Gaza. It is uh, impossible to distribute effectively, safely for our staff. Um, And as you indicated in your introduction, we'll see also waves of deaths uh, and injuries continue, uh, not just from bombing and violence, but also from from hunger, from waterborne diseases uh, uh, as well. So it is is an extraordinary uh, catastrophe that we're witnessing.
2: And you've also recently co-authored a guest essay in The New York Times saying that you've never seen anything like the siege in Gaza. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yes, we uh, I co-authored that with uh, five other peers of mine of all humanitarian agencies. And we said, look, we, we work across the world in some of the most difficult places, some of the most uh, intense conflicts, Afghanistan, Sudan, the Congo, et cetera. We've never seen anything like this. People can't flee. In a lot of uh, other situations, people are still able to to leave to flee, yes, to become refugees or displaced, which is of, of course also really difficult. But here, there is no way to get out, uh, and it is a very it's a densely populated area. Uh, there's an enormous amount of bombing and shelling going on, so it is, and as we see from the tremendous numbers of casualties, uh, a lot of them children. Uh, It is it is horrific. What 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 is going on?
2: And I mean, the fact that you've never seen this happen before, I think that that's a huge deal in of itself. And and talking about people having a hard time getting out, it's also difficult for aid to come in. So can you talk about also the risk of famine? You know, this seems to be a situation that's getting incredibly difficult and dire as we speak. Yes, and we we
1: saw those numbers, updated numbers, come out uh, from the UN just before Christmas. Uh, the entire population, so a hundred percent of people in Gaza, are now uh, foregoing meals on a on a daily basis. It is the highest number percentage of population being in food in, being in a food insecure situation ever recorded anywhere. I mean, we're running out of superlatives to describe. How unique and extraordinarily bad this situation is, really. Well,
2: and with you, what you just said, it's it's incredibly difficult to to describe what's going on. And and sadly, you also recently announced that a Save the Children staff member and family were killed by an airstrike. And since we spoke in November, this is sounds like such an obvious question here, but has it gotten more dangerous for aid workers in Gaza? Are they getting support? Or is it is it more or less the same since we last spoke?
1: It's more or less the same since we last spoke. As it, uh, as you recall, we've had seven days of pause in, in between. And, and that sounds, you know, that feels like a lifetime ago now, uh, during which, at least there was an absence of violence. We were able to get some supplies in. We were able to do some distributions, as as, as did any other aid organization that's there. Uh, but but since that ended, it has the violence has worsened. We've seen more people now displaced. We've seen more people having to move now from the middle of Gaza down further down south. So first they were asked to to go down south. People ended up in the middle in the city of Khan Yunis. That was then raided. And now people are moving ever more south. So on an even smaller uh, uh, you know, space, uh, we have more people congregated. Shelters are completely overflowing. Uh, there is no water. There's no clean water. There is no food. Markets are not functioning because there are no supplies coming in. Hospitals are mostly inoperational. Um, there is no, we, we still regularly lose contact with our staff because communications are out. Um, you know, there is no, we, we see increase in children presenting with, with rashes, with acute watery diarrhea, with uh, hepatitis. So, it, it, you know, this is, if, if the violence doesn't stop, and that is what we were trying to say in that article as well, you know, before you can do anything, around humanitarian assistance before we can start talking about, you know, the day after, we have to stop this this violence. A ceasefire is an absolute must for that.
2: And with that being such a long process, and because the, the pause happened in late November, and here we are about a, a month mm-hmm. and a half later-ish, um, it, are you able to work with other humanitarian organizations to, to give more aid, to give support, or to work on the ground? You know, how does how does that work and what does that look like right now?
1: You know, it's in 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 a lot of our responses, humanitarian organizations are are actually pretty well prepared to to respond. They know what to do. In this case, too, look, there are 10-point plans where we know exactly what needs to be prioritized, what do you need to rebuild first, what kind of supplies do you need to get in, what is critical in those first responses. But as long as there is no no humanitarian pause, as long as there's no ceasefire, it is really impossible to execute any of these uh, plans, um, no matter how good you are at coordinating uh, or working together, uh, because it is simply unsafe um, there is not enough fuel to actually effectively distribute supplies. So even the little supplies that have been dripping in since the beginning, um, they don't really make it past uh, the midpoint. Right. So in the north of Gaza, there's been no aid coming in at all, arguably, since uh, early October.
2: And I mean, with, with everything you just described, too, it's, it's a situation i think it's really hard to imagine even though we see we see photos and and video and and a few months ago we spoke with another aid organization and they talked about the enormous trauma felt in that region and and this really is a, a, a very big question a very layered question but can you talk about how that trauma is being addressed now
1: yeah, it is it is a massive trauma and of course we see that in other conflict situations as well, you know, and of course we're particularly focused and concerned about the situation for tro- for children, the trauma for children. I mean, children in Gaza and and the West Bank um you know, are seeing things that no child should ever see. They they have their families killed, their friends killed, um they have no food, no water, they are living in constant destruction and are constantly also on the move right so most people in Gaza have been displaced now not once but multiple times because they're being asked to essentially flee uh, more bombing and shelling um, you know every every other day every other week so so they're constantly on the move they forget what time you know what what day it is Um, they're the first thought in the morning and our staff, our colleagues are telling us this or their first thought in the morning is, you know what what do I do? Do I stay here with my family so that we can die together or do I go out and try to find clean water food for my family, queue up for many, many hours to you know for 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 the little supplies that are that are making it through
2: And can
1: you talk about
2: if there are unique challenges in in helping children? I know we spoke, the last time we spoke about this, as you just mentioned, we have children losing their families, witnessing them being killed, basically on a daily basis. And and one of the the ways to help them during the trauma inducing incidents is education. It's art. It's 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 mm. books. It's whatnots. But are those support systems available? Is is this something that can be addressed as best as you can as this is happening?
1: But to be really honest at in in the current state uh, in, in Gaza that is Im- impossible to do because it's right. simply not safe right. so in a normal situation in a normal situation in in other crises whether they are natural disasters or or man made conflict we we tend to have what we call child friendly spaces uh, which is essentially a, you know a space could be a building could be a tent could be anything where you have children play draw, do art, do some education, talk. We have uh, counselors uh, uh, available there, etc. And children can be children. Um, and, and it's good for their parents as well, because they know that their children are safe, even for a little while. In this current situation in Gaza, that is completely impossible to do it, because it is just not not safe. There is constant uh, bombardment, the shelling. Uh, there is there aren't spa- there isn't enough space literally to actually hold that. So, uh, and again, you know our trauma uh, experts we are ready. We it, when the if this the the violence stops, we would essentially move in with people like that uh, also in the early phase. Yes, you come in with water and food and all the basic necessities to survive, but you would also, as early as possible, start some of that. Uh, th- those child-friendly spaces, try and get children back to playing, to learning, to education, because that gives them a sense of normalcy. But again, all of that is only possible when the violence ceases.
2: And so, you know, we're we're having this follow up conversation with you about a month and a half later since we last chat chatted. You know, what do you want our listeners to understand about this humanitarian crisis? Because, as we know, our attention spans can be quite short. And are are there concerns that the world's attention will move away from the the crisis in the humanitarian efforts that's happening or not happening in Gaza?
1: Yeah, and I think that that's also always our concern in in any of the conflicts we are we are in because we are there for uh, you know for as long as necessary, and we're usually there before a conflict started, and we see it in other places. The intention wanes whether it's whether it's Ukraine, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's Sudan, mm-hmm. um, which has completely disappeared from the headlines. Um, and yes, there will be that concern for for Gaza as well. I think what people need to remember is that this is now the world's most unsafe place for kids there are over a million children there um it is past time for for the united states government for any other government to impress upon all parties there that this catastrophe can be prevented can be avoided it doesn't have to be this way Um, if if the violence stops if people start to talk um, and but most importantly, that we can start to do our work as humanitarians uh, to keep children safe.
2: And I have a final question here for you, Yanti, before we go to break. But um, as we talk about the various crises that's happening globally. You know how do we give our collective attention to the many humanitarian crises that's happening at this moment? You know, we we're just in this short span of conversation. We're talking about Gaza. We're talking about Sudan, Afghanistan, Ukraine. So how do we? How are we able to sort of pay collective attention to all of what's happening right now?
1: Well, one of the ways, and I think you're you're also trying to do that, Catherine, is to continue to highlight the stories. Uh, all of people in those situations to to lift up their voices, uh, to open our minds to what is happening around us, um, and to not shut ourselves off. I, you know I can imagine it's sometimes really hard to see those images to to read the stories uh, and sometimes you just don't want to do, to do it anymore, but I would encourage people to continue to do it and imagine what it would be like if it were their children or the children in their lives that were undergoing this tremendous trauma.
2: You've been listening to Yanti of who's the president and CEO of Save the Children, which is an international NGO and humanitarian aid organization based here in Connecticut. Thank you so much, Yanti, for spending time with us today.
1: Thank you for having me, Catherine.
2: Coming up next, we hear from a Palestinian-American poet and activist on how poetry can help process complex trauma. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. There's no slowed energy in time,
1: I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving.
2: For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Over the last few months, Where We Live has been covering the Israel-Hamas War and exploring how the conflict and history of this region has been captured through the arts. Listeners can find our recent coverage on the Palestine Museum U.S. in Woodbridge and the Museum of Jewish Civilization Hartford on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. But today, we're moving beyond the visual arts. Joining us is Zaina Azam. She's the current poet laureate of Alexandria, Virginia, and she's also the author of Some Things Never Leave You. Thank you so much, Zaina, for joining us today. Thank you. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Of course, and for our listeners, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Zaina, can you start by sharing with us, you know, with our listeners, a little bit about yourself? Sure.
0: Um, I am a Palestinian American. Uh, my parents were refugees. They fled Palestine in 1948 when the um, the state of <clears throat> the state of Israel was established. They settled for many years in Syria, uh, and that's where I was born. And when I was two years old, we moved to Beirut, Lebanon, uh, where I had my childhood. And then when I was 10, we moved to the United States. So I'm an immigrant. Uh, we, we settled in upstate New York. And so, you know, because of my background, my poetry includes a focus on the themes of displacement, uh, dislocation. I write about memory, identity, culture. Um, And of course, my parents' refugee narrative was something that I grew up with. It was sort of an overarching narrative in my life and my family's life. So I write about my parents and their experiences. And so between that and my own immigrant experience, um, I've written a a lot of poetry about these
2: kinds of dislocations um, and, and change. And do you remember the moment you gravitated to poetry as a, as a medium of expression?
0: Um, I grew up with poetry all around me in the Arab world. It's, it's a very important uh, piece of culture. It's, it's something we all grow up with. Uh, You know, we have little, little games, reciting poems or lines from poetry. And so it was something that from from my childhood that I heard all around, people just recite a line of poetry as a as like a maxim, you know. Um so when we came to the US, I already had that as part of my background. And I in my teen years, I remember going to the library and looking up the poetry section and sitting there and picking up books. I uh so I I, it's was, it was really since my teen years that I was reading uh, poetry in English, um, and um, it, it affected me deeply, and I started writing as well, uh, but just always on the side. It was, it, it's, it's something that I've had as part of my life for a very long
2: time. Well, I love that you're able to bring in, you know, a part of your culture into into your life here in the U.S. Um, in the in the poetry form, I feel like a lot of people would really appreciate that, and it would resonate with a lot of people's experiences. And I would love to to learn more too. You know, it was such a big part of your childhood, and then going into your adulthood, was there a certain sort of catharsis to to writing poetry? Especially, I know you write a lot of universal themes, but a lot of the the a lot of the poetry that you write do carry a lot of very heavy Emotions and and subjects.
0: Yeah, people tell me that a lot of my poetry is kind of sad, and uh, and I think some of it is, uh, but not all of it, of course. I write about a lot of different things. You know, I think about this question often. You know, why do we why do we write poetry? It helps us express our feelings and and the challenges we face in life. Um, we connect with something very deep, you know, in our in our hearts and in our minds. Um, and it's it's some um, it's poetry can connect us with other people. Also, uh, you you bring up issues that resonate with others. Um, it's also a way to raise awareness about uh, things that, like for me, about Palestine, about the refugee experience, the immigrant experience, um, and it can galvanize people to act. You know, in the Arab world during the Arab Spring, um, starting in twenty ten. There was a Tunisian poet named Abu Qasim Ashabi, and he wrote this poem actually in the early part of the 20th century. But people sort of latched onto it, and um, it's 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 a poem about liberation and a people rising. And people would recite it at protests. They chanted it, at, you know, at demonstrations, and they they write it on walls and they carry signs of it. So I think poetry can help us can galvanize a population. And just me personally, it's also, it kind of gives me the permission to operate in life in this very um, special place, a place of sensing the world around me and making sense of it and writing about it. And um, it's, you know, it's like, in that space of feelings and emotions, and not being a- afraid really to articulate them through poetry. So, yeah, you know, I think that's something to celebrate.
2: No, absolutely. And and speaking of of celebrations, you know, can you tell us about your book? Some things never leave you that came out in July of last year.
0: Yes, thanks for asking about that. I um, this this book is very special to me and. I'll start actually to tell you a little bit about the cover, which is a painting by Samar Hosseini, who's actually been featured at the Palestine Museum in Connecticut. Uh, I was looking for uh, something for the cover and I found Samar Hosseini's artwork. And she does these beautiful, colorful abstracts, abstract paintings and she embeds Palestinian embroidery in them. And I thought it was a perfect way for me to to, to introduce my book, which has a lot of stuff about Palestine, but it also, it's it's modern, you know, like her poetry. So it's kind of a combination of both. The book is in three parts. um, And the first part, I call it Reclaiming the Oasis, which is uh, one, a poem is the title of the poem. And the themes are um, identity, childhood, Uh, family, finding and losing love. Uh, There's lots of cultural themes. And so it's kind of a a personal and interpersonal section. Um, The second section is called The Reach of Injustice. And that one is is about dislocation and displacement, uh, poems about Palestine, but also about um, Iraq, Syria, uh, poems about war. Uh, a poem about facing our history in Alexandria, history of enslavement. Uh, some poems about home and exile. And the third section of the book uh, is called Hugging the Tree, and that's also a title of a poem. Um, I, I, like the, I like to describe the poems in this section as poems about wondrous things. So. They're about nature, the moon, comets, uh, the river, which is near my house in Alexandria, and I walk there every day. I got a couple of poems about jazz music, which is one of my favorite genres of music, and and some other personal experience um, experiences. And um, the poems, some are older, some are newer. And the title of a book of the book is is a poem about my mother. So some things never leave you. It talks about her memories and her nostalgia and her her experience as a refugee and her memories of being refugee at an old age.
2: Well, I'm looking at the at the cover now and I'm so glad you described it it's, it's got this beautiful sort of Dark and light blue, very oceany, and um, this deep rusty red. And I'm so glad you mentioned the fabric because now I'm seeing it. I don't know if I really clocked it, but now that I know what I'm looking for, it's it's just this gorgeous cover, and I definitely highly recommend everyone check it out if you if you can. And um, so we mentioned earlier that your book was released in in July, and then just a few months later, the war broke out in Israel and Palestine. So you know with that happening have you heard responses from from the book you know have you had these conversations with people about about your poetry since then yeah well it's um
0: it's been the book has been received well my publisher tells me that sales are good um and I'm, i you know i'm i'm happy about that i'm happy that you know these words are out in the world um you know i don't want to be pigeonholed as a a poet who writes only about Palestine? But I think right now that's the relevant piece of it all. Um, and and as as Yanti mentioned earlier, I mean, there's just so much suffering and anguish, and uh, we're trying to make sense of it all. And so I think um, I think I think the book is is kind of answering this, and and not just my book, honestly. A lot of Palestinian poets are being featured. A lot of poets from Gaza are being featured, and and I think I think that's wonderful that people are seeking seeking these kinds of um, poetic and literary treat, treatments um, about what is going on. You know, poetry is kind of an economy of words, right? So, in, in very few words or a poem on, on one page can just evoke so much and can reach people very deeply.
2: Well, and as we sort of continue to make make sense of what's happening and, and to navigate the news and 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 all the stories that's coming out, you know, has your writing changed since since the war? You know, what has that process been like?
0: It has changed in that I, I actually I'm having trouble writing a lot. Mm-hmm. It's been really diff- difficult to process what's going on. Um. You know again what yanti said about how many children have been killed and how many are displaced and every morning they think about are they going to have to move somewhere else and how are they going to find food or water um and having amputations so many have amputations and some of them without anesthesia i mean these children are seeing so many horrors of war and i don't know how they'll ever really cope with them and, and so I, I just end up thinking about this and and looking at, you know, seeing the pictures, reading the articles, getting the news, and it's so horrifying and so heavy. It's like a blanket over our lives that just is relentless. And so I, I, I'm i having trouble really writing. And also, you know, I'm not there. I'm not experiencing it. I can't speak for the people of Gaza. Um. And so, you know, I wrote a poem about about how parents write their children's names on their legs so that if they die, they can be identified. And I tried to um, tried to kind of think about how what that feels like for the child, what that feels like for the parent. But I can only, you know, make assumptions. I can only empathy goes so far. You know what I mean?
2: Right. Absolutely. And with you mentioning Write My Name, that's one of the poems that we would love to to have you read, if you can do that right now, that'd be great. Sure, sure. Uh, so as I mentioned, um,
0: some parents in Gaza have resorted to writing their children's names on their legs to help identify them should they or the children be killed. This is a quote from CNN um, in October. Write my name. Write my name on my leg, Mama. Use the black permanent marker with the ink that doesn't bleed if it gets wet, the one that doesn't melt if it's exposed to heat. Write my name on my leg, Mama. Make the lines thick and clear. Add your special flourishes so I can take comfort in seeing my Mama's handwriting when I go to sleep. Write my name on my leg, Mama, and on the legs of my sisters and brothers. This way, we will belong together. This way, we will be known as your children. Write my name on my leg, Mama, and please write your name and Baba's name on your legs, too, so we will be remembered as a family. Write my name on my leg, mama. Don't add numbers like I when I was born or the address of our home. I don't want the world to list me as a number. I have a name and I am not a number. Write my name on my leg, mama. When the bomb hits our house, when the walls crush our skulls and bones, our legs will tell our story. How there was
2: nowhere for us to run. Well, thank you so much for reading us reading that for us, Zaina. I remember when I came across the poem and read it and realized the the context behind it. It was just so it struck me really hard and it was really powerful. You know, can you share with us, you know, what was what was your thought process like when you were building this poem?
0: I was really, as I mentioned, I was really trying to see to, to, to feel, you know, what um what a child would think when the parents were doing this. Um and, and I wanted to just communicate that to the world, to communicate the direness, the dire situation uh of that of of families in Gaza, the kind of despair that they must feel that that they have to think about the death of their children and wanting their children to be named even in death. It, it was just, it was just so profound and so hard. I actually, you know, I was I cried as I read it, as I wrote it, I mean, and I still cry when I read it. And I have to tell you, everybody who reads it tells me how they cried. Um and this poem has actually gone viral. It's it's all over the world. It's been translated into japanese and turkish and dutch and english i mean and spanish and french and indonesian i mean it's just been on all the social media platforms it's kind of hit a nerve you know mm. thinking about children and thinking about this this really diff i mean so incredibly difficult situation that that these families in gaza are in
2: well, and, and the responses makes me wonder this this seems to be a very universal theme right regardless of where you are in the world it resonates with people and and with you writing poetry you're so familiar with your emotions you're familiar with with your story and telling people your story you know were you surprised that this was the response especially a, a piece of poetry Art being translated in so many different languages—that's telling me that people really, really understand what you're trying to say here. I,
0: I was—I was completely blown away by it. Honestly, I had no idea that that would be the case. Uh, I—it was—it was really overwhelming to me to think that that's what was happening. Um, and you know, I don't know. I mean, I think people—people people really connected with this poem and and i'm i'm happy i'm so happy about that at the same time you know you always wonder i mean what is it what is it what is the effect of it really on what's happening the bombing continues the ceasefire hasn't happened um but anyway it's it was a small contribution to the discourse about gaza the contribution about emotions about gaza um you know in arabic the word for poet is sha'ir And it comes. All Arabic words come from a root, and um, and it comes from the root to sense, to feel. And so, you know, the poet is the person who senses and feels. Um, And of course, you know, we 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 don't have a corner on all these things. We're not the only ones who have uh, these qualities. But I do think that poets take the time to, you know, delve deeply. Into issues, into life around them, and try to articulate these kinds of uh, feelings. And so that really connects with
2: people, it, can, it helps people articulate their own feelings. Well, I'm sure many readers out there appreciate you sharing your roots with them. We certainly appreciate you doing that here on the show today. We're hearing from Zayna Azam. She's a Palestinian-American poet and writer and also the current poet laureate of Alexandria, Virginia. She's also the author of Some Things Never Leave You. And you can find a link to her work on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. She'll be staying with us and we'll hear more of her poetry coming up. You can join the conversation 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Zaina Azam is a Palestinian-American poet and writer, and also the current Poet Laureate of Alexandria, Virginia. At the start of the Israel-Hamas War, she wrote the poem, Write My Name, that's been translated into several languages and read at protests and gatherings worldwide. And today, she joins us to talk about her work as Poet Laureate and a Community Activist. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Zaina, we've been talking about, you know, you're the Poet Laureate of Alexandria, Virginia, which is a city, right, outside of Washington, D.C. What has it been like to witness the community and the political response to the war in Gaza as both the Poet Laureate and a Palestinian-American? Well, you know,
0: this is kind of a difficult question because I really try to separate my work as Poet Laureate and my work as an activist on Palestine issues. Um, So I, but of course I am the same person and all these things are very important to me. Um, So I think um, the community has been, you know, the, the, uh, when, when everything started, our city hall was lit, lit up in the colors of the Israeli flag and blue and white. And um and so they were it was solidarity with Israel. And then they kept the lights on for a long time, even as Israel was, you know, killing a lot of people, bombing and making people displacing people. So that was really difficult for me to witness. And I, you know, I have been uh emailing the mayor and the city council about this. I think it's one thing to be stand in solidarity with with israel and that's fine but i think i would have liked to see a little bit more um kind of um, empathy with with palestinians also you know there are palestinians who live in alexandria who have have family and friends in gaza many of whom have been killed so this has been a difficult thing for me to witness um but a lot of people are, are reaching out to me um you know knowing Many people have have read my poem, write my name, um, and have been attending many of my readings. Many of them are for Palestinian uh, poet in Palestinian poetry circles, and so I, I've gotten I've gotten a lot of support. I mean, it's it's uh, you know I I don't speak for Alexandria in terms of my own political views, and I mean that's on every every topic, not just in Palestine, but um, but it's I, this is my identity, and so I, I put it out on the table.
2: Um, well, and, and part of your work, too, is you serve as a mentor for a writing program for youth in Gaza. Can you talk about what that work is like for you?
0: Absolutely. It's, it's a program that I've been volunteering for since 2015, and it's called We Are Not Numbers, and it it speaks to the idea that um, Palestinians are, you know, not not— not looked at as human often in in world events and in in especially in the United States, and so people are saying, you know, we're not just numbers; we're human beings. We have lives. We have a culture. We have a history. And the idea behind we are not numbers is um, to pair mentors in the United States and Europe. And I'm a mentor with a young person from Gaza who wants to write in English. And so they they share an essay with me. um, And I I mentor them over uh, Zoom or just through email. Uh, I help them in editing it and finalizing it. And uh, so each time I do one of these things, it takes about a month. We go back and forth three or four times. And then they actually the article is published on the we are not numbers website so it's been really a, a profound experience for me because i've gotten to know some of these young people from gaza even though i'm palestinian i don't have any relatives in gaza i have relatives in the west bank and jerusalem and inside israel but i don't have any you know familial um connections with Gaza. So it's been a really wonderful thing for me to have these connections and to really try to understand what the young people there are uh, feeling and what they're writing. And I'm still in touch with one of them whom I mentored recently. I I get text messages from him. and, And he lives in the north of Gaza. And Yanti earlier said that there's no aid that's getting in the north. And it's really, I hear it from him you know they're breaking up um tables and chairs to get wood so they can start a fire so they can make a meal and they're they make they have one meal a day at most um having trouble finding medicines not able to find water it's it's the situation is incredibly dire so having you know he 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 writes to me and tells me all this and i write him back and it's it's been really i mean, i'm I'm honored that he it takes a few minutes once every few days to write to me. but it's it really gives me an idea of what really is going on on the ground
2: and And was there anything that surprised you during the experience, especially, you know, we don't give the youth enough credit, I think, for for many things. But I'm just trying to imagine the fact that, you know, they're going through what they're going through, but they can still, they can still do art. They can still um, they can still write and and create something. You know, like how has that experience been like for you to hear these stories, to see the art and the essays coming out from Gaza?
0: Well, I have to say we have many fewer uh, essays mm-hmm. uh, coming from Gaza now. People don't have the time. They're just they're using their time to survive. They don't have internet. Uh, it's it, they can't even you know write or they can't send anything. Um, Israel has these blackouts every every week. There's a lot of blackout, and so we have not been hearing as much from them. There are a few essays that are trickling in, but not as certainly nowhere near what we have before. Um, but people can read their essays from before, and was also coming in on wearenotnumbers.org. Uh, so there are a few things coming. Um, what strikes me is just the amazing how much. They have to grow up. I mean, these are these are young people who are 18, 19, 20 years old, and they have seen more than certainly more than I've seen in in, in my lifetime. I mean, they've seen so much. They've had to grow up. They have to be strong and they have to uh, deal with so so many, so many difficulties, so many challenges. That's what really strikes me. And and the fact that they, you know, work hard. To be resilient, to, to move forward, to keep going, and to and to help their families as much as they can. There are many young people from Gaza who are um, who are on Instagram and on Twitter, who are who are um, reporting, you know, in their own ways about life every day. And I really urge people to to uh, to listen to them because you're really getting the, the story from all of them. So they have really. Been, you know, galvanized as as a generation, um, and and they really they have they're very steadfast, or at least they're trying to be. Things are just getting worse and worse. One of them, I saw her on Instagram the other day, and she said she hasn't eaten for two days, and she doesn't know where her next meal is going to come from so the 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 starvation is and the water n- no water available has been a really really difficult thing these are fundamental human rights food and water and um so you know it's like a hierarchy of needs they they really need to to we need a ceasefire. and and when we when we talk about this as a famine, it's not really a famine because famines are usually natural disasters, you know, deserts encroaching or um earthquakes. um this is a this is a human-made situation. And like Yanti said earlier, it could be changed. You know, the water faucets could be turned on, the food could food aid could come in. Uh, it's just there's no political will to do it.
2: And as we you know we, we, we talk about this all the time, you know as this is ongoing as we as we continue to navigate and, you know, I hope you're still able to to talk to the youth and and to help them in in your way. And I know there's a second poem that you would like to share with us with our listeners. You know, could you could you tell us a little bit about, about that poem and read it for us, please?
0: Sure, I'd be happy to, um, um, this poem I actually wrote, it's in my book, so it was it was an older poem, but there have been so many wars on Gaza and there have been so many wars everywhere else in the world, Ukraine and Afghanistan, so I mean, there's just too much. And so I wrote this poem actually with Palestine in mind, with Gaza in mind, but I think it's, something, it's a poem that could be um, applicable to so many other war-torn areas. In fact, a friend of mine who's Japanese, um, translated it to Japanese, and she read it at a Hiroshima commemoration in August. Um, So it's called Death in War. After the headlines, the photographs of still bodies in utter surrender, the stacking and burying in unmarked graves, don't turn away. Say a prayer for each farmer, teacher, bearded grandfather on a cane, mother whose scarf flies in the air, father staring at the ground. Think of the empty chairs at the dinner table, the shirt and socks missing from the clothesline. Remember each pair of hands that opened and closed, held a pencil, clapped with joy. And when the wheat and flowers they sowed reach toward the sun, bring water to these tenacious flags of
2: presence on the land. Well, thank you, Zena, for reading that for us. And we only have about a minute left here, but I want to ask: you know, with what you just read and with our conversation, what do you hope our listeners take out from it? Um, I mean, I you know, I want. I want
0: our list, your listeners, to to really understand what's going on in Gaza right now, and to try and and help in any way to push for a ceasefire. Um, I I want you know I want everybody to be free. I want the hostages to be free on both sides. I want uh, the children of Gaza to lead a normal life, to have their families around them, and to feel safe. Um. And you know, I guess I would like to urge your your listeners to to look at poetry as as a way to express themselves. To read poetry by people from Gaza, by Palestinians, you know, the um, national poet of Palestine, Mahmoud Darwish, he he said, um, "Every beautiful poem is an act of resistance." And, and, you know, it could be a resistance to war. It could be a resistance to political stuff that's happening in your country. But I think poetry can serve that way as a, as a way to process, as a way to comment, as a way to feel solidarity with,
2: with everyone and, and, and to resist oppression. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. You've been listening to Zaina Azam. Thank you so much, Zaina, for being on Where We Live today. We really appreciate you sharing your story with us. Thank you for having me, Catherine. It was my pleasure. It really is an honor. Thank you. And for our listeners, you can find a link to our work on our website, ctpublic.org wherewelive. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.